welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. On October 21st, just as a landmark opioid trial was about to begin, a $260 million settlement was reached by three major distributors and an opioid manufacturer with Cuyahoga and Summit Counties in Ohio. The deal which is a combination of cash payouts and donations of addiction treatments, could become a model for settlement of thousands of similar cases brought in an attempt to hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable for an epidemic of addiction that has killed an estimated 400,000 Americans. Joining me today for his reaction to this week's settlement is Andrew Paulus, Case Western Reserve Professor of Law, who has been following the MDL closely since it began some two years ago. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. So, we'll get right into this. Like so often happens, the parties negotiate up until the last possible moment, and then they settle. So, let's begin by talking about what was at stake for both sides that compelled them to settle at the last minute? Well, the stakes are always higher the closer you get to trial, which is why, you know, the old adage is that, you know, cases, if they don't settle beforehand, often settle on the courthouse steps as the parties are literally walking in the courthouse to begin. Uh, In this case, the stakes were very high for both sides. Uh, For the plaintiffs, they obviously have the two counties in question, uh, a population that has been really in parts uh, devastated by the opioid crisis. And there's, uh, they, they have alleged that they have provided additional government services as a fallout of the crisis. Um, but for most of us, I think the, the bigger concern was how to prevent the crisis from getting worse and maybe even reverse it going forward through what's called abatement, meaning steps that can be taken to essentially get people clean and, and prevent the, the, the problems associated with addiction by cutting it off at the, at the root, at the addiction. And that process, that abatement process, is very expensive, and I think we'll be talking a little bit more about about that, but uh, that abatement process is terribly expensive, and so the counties obviously wanted to extract as much money as possible out of the defendants in order to have the tools with which to address that crisis. The difficulty, of course, is that if they had gone to trial and not prevailed, then they wouldn't have received anything above and beyond the settlements that they've already obtained from some of the defendants who had settled uh, earlier on. And that's a risk. It's a risk that there wouldn't have been a plaintiff's verdict. And it's a risk that even with a plaintiff's verdict, that there would have been issues that would have caused uh, the Court of Appeals down the road to to reverse it. And then, of course, either way, you're dealing with an enormous amount of time before the counties would have seen any penny of this money because the trial process and the appeal process themselves can take so long. So for the plaintiffs, it was an opportunity, the counties in question, to get money in their pockets immediately. And for the defendants, uh, they also had an enormous amount of risk. Part of the risk would have been an adverse judgment that they were desperately uh, hoping to avoid. But another aspect of it would have been the evidence as it came out that 
by all accounts, was really just a, a devastating cascade of of uh, communications and internal uh, marketing practices on the defendant side and turning a blind eye to oversupplying the markets on the distributor side. These are not the kinds of facts that the industry wanted coming out. And so uh, at the cost of $260 million, uh, this particular group of defendants headed for trial was able to buy their way out of the risk of a higher verdict and out of the, the downside of, of the publicity attendant to what would have happened if the trial had gone forward. So let's go there. What would have happened had the trial gone forward? Summit County, Cuyahoga County, both of them decided to settle. But had they not, what would we be looking at? Well, the interesting thing about this particular uh, case, as it was scheduled to go to trial, is that there was only one manufacturer of opioids in the group, and that's Teva. Now, the rest of the defendants were, uh, were distributors and, and retailers of, of opioid drugs. That's important because the marketing practices of the industry that we've heard so much about uh, and that were central to the result in the Oklahoma case against Johnson & Johnson some months back, uh, that evidence really involves marketing on the part of the manufacturers and not so much on the part of the distributors. And it isn't clear to me how much of that evidence would have been admissible in court with only one manufacturer at play, and that's Teva, who uh, who was not, you know, by all accounts, the the, the greatest evildoer in this marketing scheme. Uh, Purdue Pharma is alleged to have played that role, and that Purdue, obviously being in bankruptcy, would not have been able to participate in the trial. But nevertheless, there are coordinated industry-wide efforts that might have been uh, put into evidence whereby Teva would have been tagged with some of the industry-wide efforts to downplay the risks of opioids and uh, addictive properties and and so forth. And so that would have been uh, really kind of a devastating cascade of of evidence if it had come in. Uh, It wouldn't have mattered as much for the distributors at the trial, but it would be difficult, I think, for any jury to hear that evidence and keep the distributors and the manufacturers distinct. Uh, We think of the pharmaceutical industry, we don't think of its constituent parts that way. So that would have happened. and, And then on the distributor side, you would have seen a lot of evidence of uh, as I said earlier, the the sort of turning a blind eye to oversaturating the markets. A jury would have then been tasked with deciding whether, in fact, there had been uh, misconduct that gives rise to liability. And if there was misconduct, the jury would have been asked to decide how much it would take to compensate Cuyahoga and Summit counties for all of the extra services that they provided in the communities to uh, deal with the consequences of uh, a higher incidence of opioid addiction among its population. The jury also would have been asked to decide whether it viewed the manufacturer's and distributor's conduct as what's called a public nuisance, meaning uh, illegal behavior that affected the, the health and welfare of, of you know, a large swath of the community. And if the jury had reached a finding against the defendants on that claim, then Judge Polster would have had another hearing afterwards where he would have heard all of the evidence that the counties wanted to put forward on what it would take to abate the crisis, meaning the forward-looking expenses in order to uh, essentially solve the opioid public health crisis. That amount of money, uh, it's almost unthinkable how much it really would take or will take, but that would have been the nature of the judge's uh, 
after-the-fact decision on that one aspect of it. So the jury would have decided damages retrospectively, and the judge uh, would decide the, the amount of money it would take prospectively going forward to fix the problem. All told, you know, the damages would have been uh, you know, perfect scenario for the plaintiffs would have been significantly higher than the $260 million that they agreed to take. But of course, there was a risk that they wouldn't prevail. And also there's the time value of getting the money immediately. And I think we saw a little bit about what that abatement would, uh, would cost and what found guilty of public nuisance looks like through the Oklahoma trial with Johnson & Johnson, right? Right. And uh, I would caution you, too, in that case to remember that in the Oklahoma case, the amount of abatement costs that the judge there awarded, uh, with he's made a, a uh, revision to his calculation, but it's in the neighborhood at this point of you know four hundred and seventy some million dollars, uh, and that is only for one year. Now it's the whole state of Oklahoma, not just two counties. But for $470 million in year one, if the plaintiffs, if the state of Oklahoma had been, is able, it still might be able to go back and get more for year two, you could see that cost really exponentially go up uh, with each, each increasing year of abatement damages. Not clear they'll get more, but the possibility hasn't been foreclosed. So uh, with that context, it's easy to look at the numbers for Cuyahoga and Summit counties, sure, it's only two out of 88 Ohio counties, uh, yet still uh, the total amount they're getting for the whole kind of a whole shebang here, uh, 260 plus 260 million plus the settlements they've reached earlier, uh, is potentially significantly less than what the state of Oklahoma was, was able to recover if, in fact, that recovery extends beyond that one year. And I think they asked for 18 years, didn't they, initially? In Oklahoma? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it, there were different models of how they would their plan would work. But yeah, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, of 20 years. So back here, Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Teva all chose to settle. And Walgreens remains the lone defendant who's out there. What happens next for them? Well, the thing to remember about this trial is that Judge Polster selected it to be what's called a bellwether trial. And for the benefit of your listeners who may not be familiar with that term, it comes from, I think, the the, the shepherding industry where one sheep wears a bell and thereby helps the other sheep know where to go. Um, so that bellwether trial was really designed within this multi-district litigation in which there are over 2,000 different lawsuits consolidated for pretrial purposes in front of Judge Polster. The idea is to hold a trial with uh, you know one or two, in this case, two plaintiffs the purpose of which was not only to resolve those plaintiffs' claims, but also to get a feel for what a jury in a situation like this would actually do on the theory that if the jury came back with a certain award, that would be a bellwether for how the other cases would go, and it would be a model for a settlement structure. What happened instead is that almost all of the defendants settled out, some of them earlier on, the rest, as we talked about, at the 11th hour on the, on the day of. And so the bellwether aspect of the trial had already kind of uh, started to dissipate even before the day of, because we didn't have some of the major manufacturers going to trial. And then with the settlement at the last minute, the bellwether goes away completely, except with respect to Walgreens. And apparently what you know the, the thinking was that the value in going to trial against one uh, defendant, uh, a retailer at that, goes down significantly in terms of its bellwether uh, attributes. So uh, 
what Judge Polster did was was basically said no trial. We'll have a trial another time against Walgreens and theoretically against some of the other originally named defendants that were not supposed to be included in this trial, but are still defendants that the, the two counties in question have sued. So the the, the concerns with, with Walgreens, you know, if they still, Walgreens and the other unresolved claims against the other defendants still need to be resolved. But I would imagine that that isn't very high on Judge Polster's priority list at this point. He still wants to settle the whole opioid crisis. And in that light, the next cases down coming down the pipeline are out of West Virginia. Those are what are called the track two cases. So uh, my guess is that after everybody catches up on their sleep and, and you know gets a little R&R in after a lot of work, the judge will start to focus his attention on those West Virginia claims and get those ready for trial in the hope that the cases will settle, or if not, that at least we'll have a case that will go to trial and, and serve that bellwether function. Now, one little interesting note about that that many of your listeners may not appreciate is that if those West Virginia claims do go to trial, they have to go back to West Virginia. They can't be tried here in Cleveland. Judge Polster sits in Cleveland and theoretically could go down to West Virginia and serve as a visiting judge to try those cases. And my guess is that that's what he would do. Um, But because of the way the MDL system works, every case has to be tried if it is tried in the jurisdiction where it was first filed. And these cases in West Virginia, having been filed in West Virginia and then transferred into the MDL, now need to go back to West Virginia for trial. Uh, Not now, but eventually, once Judge Polster indicates that the the cases are are in shape for trial. My guess is that West Virginia was chosen for track two, partly because you know it's ground zero for the opioid crisis, but also because of its geographic proximity to Cleveland and the ease with which Judge Polster can easily scoot down there uh, for the time it would take to try the cases. It's really, no one can force him to do it. He may not want to do it. Uh, my sense of Judge Polster is that his uh, his sense of civic duty would impel him to do it if if the circumstances are, are right. And my guess is that uh, those on the West Virginia side of things who uh, or in the Fourth Circuit, which is actually the, the, the court of appeals that controls the West Virginia District Court, that they would all be very amenable to his doing that because it's uh, nobody else wants this hot potato. What about the remaining communities and Native American tribes in the multi-district litigation? What happens next for them? That's a great question. Well, uh, the bellwether trial didn't happen, so there is no uh, no weather to bell uh, or bell to weather. Uh, they don't know now what the trial result would have been. And unfortunately, the settlement didn't resolve their claims. It resolved only the claims of these two Ohio counties. Now, that isn't to say that the settlement itself is not uh, does not have some bellwether function to it. We now have a result in Oklahoma, and we have a settlement in Cuyahoga and Summit counties. And you know, it, it's not rocket science to try to put your heads together and figure out with those data points what a reasonable settlement might be for the rest of the MDL. But it's very complicated because you've got so many different parties. You've got uh, states and local governments at war with each other over who gets this money. You've got the uh, announcement last week of a you know fifty billion dollar deal that was then immediately uh, uh, rejected by the, the the cities and the counties, even though some of the AGs, the state AGs, are on board with it. So there's a lot of political infighting going on at this point. I'm sure that amount amounts of money to satisfy the lawyers' fees is part of the issue. 
dividing the money up between the states and the local governments is part of the issue. Dividing the money up among the states and among the local governments is part of the issue. And uh, and we just really at this point don't know what's going to happen other than Judge Polster is likely to start, as I said, advancing this West Virginia case for trial just to keep the pressure on because he has learned that pressure works. But unfortunately, he can't put the pressure on you know, all 2,600 plaintiffs in the MDL because only one of those cases or two or three at a time can, can be uh, rigged up for trial. The other aspect of this that your question goes to is this negotiation class that Judge Polster has certified, and that's important. Uh, it's a negotiation class that is designed to try to settle not just the claims of the uh, communities who have sued in the MDL, but indeed nationwide, all of the local governments in the country. And uh, it's unclear if that negotiation class will hold up on appeal. It's been challenged. And it's unclear if it does hold up on appeal, what end result it might uh, uh, portend for the settlements, because no defendant is required to participate in it. Indeed, no plaintiff is required to participate in it. It's a voluntary process on everybody's part, but it's a mechanism that if it holds up on appeal, could provide at least a structure within which a settlement could get uh, finalized. But this is like herding cats. There are so many different interests competing with each other in, at the same time. Limited amounts of money, threats of bankruptcy, uh, threats of appeal, and so forth. So you've got all of these influences sort of converging together and you know, in, in one scenario, the influences force everybody to the settlement table and you get a result, but it's just as likely, in my view, that it becomes uh, or remains as chaotic as it's been, and we haven't seen settlements yet of the magnitude that I think Judge Polster was hoping uh, way back when, when he first had a conference in this case and said it was his goal to get it resolved. Well, Professor Paulus, as always, thank you for your insight into this. That uh, that really helps and certainly clarified everything that's going on, all the moving parts. It's really complex. It very much is, Greg, and I thank you so much for the invitation. Joining me today, providing his reaction to this week's settlement news, has been Andrew Paulus, who is the Case Western Reserve Professor of Law, and he's been following the MDL very, very closely, as you can tell, for the last two years. With this historic settlement this week, I thought it would be a good time to revisit the op-ed that I collaborated with Dr. Stephen Lloyd, who specializes in treating addiction at the Mountain Home for Veterans Administration Medical Center in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Tom Stuber, the president and CEO of Lorain County Alcohol and Drug Abuse Services, and the widely recognized expert in our neck of the woods as far as the recovery field is concerned. Our op-ed is about honoring the lives of those lost in the opioid epidemic with a settlement in memoriam. When the Food and Drug Administration approved Oxycodone in 1995, it unwittingly instigated the worst health crisis our country has ever known. Now, nearly a quarter of a century into the opioid crisis, it's clear the pharmaceutical industry duped our government into believing opioids were safe to freely prescribe for almost any ailment. By the time we realized we were in a health crisis, thousands of people had already lost their lives and countless communities had been financially and emotionally devastated just trying to keep pace with the tsunami of overdoses. In America today, hundreds of thousands of families will never be whole again. Their lives change forever the day they lost their loved ones to the opioid epidemic. Some bury themselves in their work to try to forget. 
Others dedicate much of their time to fighting the opioid epidemic to keep the spirit of their loved ones alive. And still others remain indefinitely paralyzed by their grief as they try to make sense of their new normal. But all are united through a tragic life's experience that will remain with them forever. As money from legal settlements and judgments against drug companies becomes available, a place must be reserved in the conversation for this group of people of whom I am a member. Money can't replace our loved ones. So what do we do? Well, we can begin by realizing recovery from opioid addiction depends on recognizing it for what it is, a lifelong chronic brain disease that must be managed like any other disease. But all too often in our country today, the programs that provide the most resources and offer the most hope for long-term recovery are accessible only to those of means. After I lost my son, I started a podcast series to try to make sense of it all and hopefully help others. Along the way, I've had the privilege of meeting some amazing people who are making a profound difference in the opioid epidemic. One of these people, Dr. Stephen Lloyd, is in recovery from opioid addiction himself. Dr. Lloyd specializes in treating addiction at the Mountain Home Veterans Administration Medical Center in Johnson City, Tennessee. He said, We know that someone's best chance at long-term recovery from any substance use disorder is high-quality, long-term, inpatient care, followed by significant aftercare and follow-up for five years. He went on to say, This model has been utilized successfully with positive outcomes in more than 75% of the cases for doctors and airline pilots. Tom Stuber, president and CEO of the Lorain County Alcohol and Drug Abuse Services and widely recognized expert in the recovery field, agrees on the need for longer-term treatment. He said, The brain takes a minimum of 35 weeks to stabilize. Research indicates that the longer treatment duration or the length of engagement, the better the outcome. Conversely, the shorter the engagement, the greater the likelihood the patient will compromise the management of their illness. His cost estimate for a program like that described by Dr. Lloyd, one that covers treatment for a five-year period, is $216,000 per patient half of which is physical follow-up with medication-assisted treatment. Nothing can be done to bring back the family members we've lost to the opioid epidemic over the last 25 years. What can be done and should be done is earmark opioid settlement funds to provide one person the best chance at long-term recovery program for every life lost to the opioid epidemic in every state. According to the CDC, from 1999 to 2017, almost 400,000 lives were lost to overdose involving prescription and illicit opioids. That means setting aside $86.4 billion for treatment. I can think of no better way to honor those we've lost to the opioid epidemic than to offer the best hope for a new life in recovery through a settlement in memoriam. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources.
Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.